0: Welcome back. I'm Kermi. And this is Cassandra. And we're too good to be true. And this yep. week, <laughs> I'm going to be talking about Enron. Actually, this week and next week, I'm going to be talking about Enron. It's going to be a two-parter because there's just a shitload of information about right. it, And there was a lot involved, and it went over a long span of time. And nobody wants to listen to me talk about this shit for four hours, so... Well, maybe you do. And if you are one of those people that saves two-parters for the second part, God love you because... If you're the person that don't care me, she had a sexy voice. Maybe you would like to listen to her for four hours. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, man. You're not sorry. I'm not. I really not I thought that was hilarious. I want a side <laughs> eye. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs> um, moving on. I'm just going to jump in because, like I said, it's a lie. And if we keep pissing around, it's going to take forever. So, Enron was formed in 1985 through the merger of Houston Natural Gas and InterNorth by a man named Kenneth Lay. They've been in existence previously for a while there was a whole backdated information so back- it was like an already established yeah enron was and enron was thing. formed through this merger but these things have been around and there was like a backstory all the way back to 1925 and i was not doing that absolutely not it's too right so much. much we're going to start from when enron mm-hmm. kind of became a thing rather than launching all the way into the pre-history of it and in 1987 After Enron was formed, there was already a scandal involving the company, later referred to as Valhalla. Like right after the merger? Yeah, like Enron was formed in 1985, and then in 1987, we've already got a scandal. Jeez. And it was called Valhalla Valhalla, because it was, I guess, centered in like Valhalla, New York, which is a city. So, well, what happened then was that the company's president, Louis Borgit, and the treasurer tom mastrellini mask you know I, I heard them pronounce his name like 15 times and that- i know that's how i felt when i did mine last week i was like i watched a youtube video on this and i heard them pronounce this a million times and i i'll be damned if i can say it yeah, in, in my own i think mouth. it's mass or something like that anyway those two men the president and the treasurer, had taken over three million dollars from the company and diverted it into personal accounts after engaging in fictitious trading wow that's quick and the money was diverted into this account owned by this unknown lebanese person i guess who went by the name m yas which if you put that together it's going into my ass yeah (laughs) i was gonna say okay my ass yeah and i and people were commenting how they thought that was, you know, purposeful. And Borgett was convicted of fraud and sentenced to 1 year in jail. And Lay Kenneth Lay, like I said, who was the um you know, like the the leader, of the, I'm not sure what exactly. He might have been CEO. Okay. But um he was advised to fire these two men, but he didn't. And in fact he sent some correspondence saying please keep making us more millions. So right off the bat, we know, geez, that Mr. Kenneth Lay. Great business practices going on here. Right. We know he's completely fine with overlooking dishonesty in in, uh, in, the face of, hey, we're going to make money. You yeah. Know? He's like, keep doing what you're doing. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care if it's, we're making money. I don't care if it's morally or ethically sound or illegal. It's making us money. And that just made me think of those kids that do the Kardashian TikToks where they're like. It's not ethical, and it's not ethical, it's not professional. It's not professional, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and me and Jade were just watching that, because she loves those two. I loves those them. kids. That's what it made me think of. It's not ethical, and it's not professional. <laughs> no. But, yeah, he's, he's obviously fine with this. And in the early 1990s, Kenneth Lay or Kenny Boy, as which we'll find out George W. Bush also played a part in this, Oh, gee. And he was on great terms with the president, and the president called him Kenny Boy. Kenny Boy. Yep. So Kenny Boy Lay was involved in the 1990s in the selling of electricity at market prices, and Congress approved the deregulation of natural gas sales shortly after. And this is where that little Kenny Boy comes into play. You know, he he was getting shit passed by George W. Bush because they were, you know, besties. Uh Mm-hmm. This allowed Enron and other traders to sell energy at higher prices, increasing the company's revenue. Despite concerns about price volatility and calls for increased regulation from producers and local governments, Enron successfully lobbied against such regulation. So they basically just wanted it to be like a free market where they could just charge whatever they wanted to charge. By 1992 enron became the largest natural gas seller in north america with gas contract trading contributing 122 million dollars to its net income and then the launch of enron online in november 1999 enabled the company to better manage its contracts trading business so they were kind of they were online when everybody else was still you know doing behind the scenes shit right? right kind of made it more transparent And to achieve further growth, Enron pursued a diversification strategy, owning and operating assets across the globe, including gas pipelines, electricity plants, paper plants, water plants, and broadband services. They also traded contracts for these products and services, setting up power generation plants in developing countries and emerging markets such as the Philippines, Indonesia, and India. Okay. India ends up costing them a lot later on down the line because they're dumb and they're just doing whatever they want to do with disregard for what's actually what they're doing. supposed to be doing. During this time then Enron stock saw a modest increase of 311% from the early 1990s until the end of 1998, which was slightly higher than the average growth rate of the Standard & Poor or S&P 500 index. So they're doing just a little bit better than other companies. However, the stock rose significantly by 56% in 1999 and a further 87% in 2000, compared to the index's increase of 20% and decrease of 10% during the same years. So index's increase is 20%, they're doing 87 So it's quite a bit higher. So the math isn't math. I math isn't the <laughs> same. By the end of 2000, Enron's stock was priced at $83.13, with a market capitalization exceeding $60 billion, 70 times earnings and 6 times book value. Enron was also rated the most innovative large company in America in Fortune's most admired company survey. Their intricate financial statements were challenging for shareholders and analysts to comprehend and its complicated business model and unethical conduct required the company to use accounting limitations to manipulate earnings and adjust the balance sheet to show favorable, favorable performance. So they're just making shit up. So just, like, making it all up to make it look like they're making this profit, or? or yes, oh, that's God. exactly what they're doing. And I'll explain more of it later on. So in addition to that, they had made some risky business ventures that turned out to be pretty disastrous, which part of it was India. Nice. And these issues ultimately led to Enron's bankruptcy, with the majority of them resulting from the direct actions or indirect knowledge of executives such as Lay, Jeffrey Skilling, Andrew Fastow, and Rebecca Mark lay who served as enron's chairman in its final years approved of skilling and fastow's actions but he didn't always inquire about the details because again he, he sh- don't sh- care that as long as they were making money he didn't care yeah they're making money for him so he doesn't care how they're doing it skilling advocated for the use of mark to market accounting which was based on market value and then inflated and pressured enron executives to conceal its debt through new means what mark to market is it's essentially allowed Enron to book future profits on the day a deal was signed, regardless of how much cash actually came in. So okay. if this dude's sitting there thinking, "Okay, if I buy this or do this trade or whatever, it's going to result in sixty million dollars profit," he's immediately just based on that assumption saying he already made makes $60 the sixty million. million. Yeah, and he's not having to show. Any cash. Any hash. That he actually made. Like that he actually made the $60 million. Yeah. That's wild. And Fastow and other executives created, and I quote, off-balance sheet vehicles, complex financing structures, and deals so intricate that few could understand them. And they did that on purpose. Great. Yeah, because they didn't want people to probably be able to realize that it wasn't that it was all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In September 2000, an article published in the Texas Journal, a regional edition of the Wall Street Journal, discussed the prevalence of mark-to-market accounting in the energy industry. The article raised concerns that outsiders had no way of verifying the assumptions companies based their earnings on. True. So we're like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they're making it up out of nowhere. Oh, you know what? That's going to earn this much. That sounds good. Yeah, you know what that's I mean. Basically, what they were doing, and this article was kind of like calling them out for it. They're like, "This is not gonna work, guys. You can't just make shit up." It's okay, called it a day. Here. And short seller Jim Chanos read the article and decided to investigate Enron's 10K report, which is a 10K is where they show their actual financial standing within the okay. business and um, submit certified financial statements from an auditor. So. He investigates this 10K report, and he noticed inconsistencies in the company's financial performance and saw the insiders were selling large amounts of stock, which is kind of a red flag. Right. The insiders are selling it. There's probably a problem that they know about, and that's, first of all, That's why they're legal. selling it off. Yeah. You can't be doing... You're this, to do again. that. Yeah. In November 2000, Chano shorted Enron's stock. So what short selling is, it's wagering that the stock will drop in price and then if it does drop after the short sale, the short seller buys it back at a lower price so they've sold it for, you know, a high price, mm-hmm. they resell it for 20 bucks and then it drops to $10, then they'll go ahead and buy, buy it, back, it back and they return it to the lender. The difference between the sell price and the buy price is the short seller's profit. Okay. In February 2001, Enron's chief accounting officer, Rick Causey, claimed that the company's accounting for that year would be the easiest ever. Okay, (laughs) sure. It's pretty easy when you're just making it the fuck up. Yeah, that's awfully uh, optimistic. However, in March 2001, a Fortune article by Bethany McLean questioned Enron's high stock value, which was trading at 55 times its earnings, and raised concerns that analysts and investors did not fully understand how the company generated its profits. I think her article was it had a simple name. It was like, is Enron priced too high or something like that. Yeah. That was all it was. And she had become interested in Enron's financial situation after Chaynos recommended she examine the company's 10K report. Her investigation uncovered unusual transactions, erratic cash flow, and alarming levels of debt, which she believed was a major red flag. As you would, I think. Yeah. None of it sounds good. Yeah, so she's basically, she's seeing that they have all this debt and that they're just concealing it with making this stuff up. (laughs) In the late 1990s, Enron's stock was being traded for a high price of $80 to $90 per share. And the company's financial disclosures were not being questioned at that time. But in mid-July of 2001, Enron reported revenues of $50.1 billion, which was nearly three times higher than the year-to-date revenue. So looking at their reports, they're like, Holy shit. Um, Why is this three times higher than what you're actually showing? That's a huge discrepancy. And the report also exceeded analysts' estimates by three cents per share. Despite this, Enron's profit margin had remained at a modest average of about 2.1%, and its share price had decreased by over 30% since the same quarter of the previous year. Over time, different concerns began to emerge for the company. Okay. Because he can't just hide and make stuff up forever. Eventually. Yeah, like, it's going to come out. It's going to come to, like, head and everyone's going to, like, find out about it. Yeah. Enron had encountered a few operational challenges, including difficulties in managing a new broadband communications training unit and the losses that resulted from constructing the Dabal Power Project in India. So, at that time... <laughs> Nobody else wanted to deal with India because India didn't really have the money to support this. And Enron was like, "Eh, let's do it anyway. And they lost out big on it. They lost like a billion dollars. Wow. And then this power project never really came to fruition. It's just abandoned over there. It just got abandoned. Yes. And yet all of the traders got like multi-million dollar bonuses Based off of what? Based off no, of you know what the, they said. Yeah, the, they could... the fake made up yeah. profits that never yeah. existed. And the project in general had been controversial from the start because of the high pricing and the bribery that occurred at the highest levels. And these issues were subsequently verified in the Senate investigation of two thousand two. A little bit of the Senate investigation is included in the documentary The Smartest Guys in the Room. That documentary (laughs) the documentary was made in the early two thousands and it shows it's very Wonky and all over the place, and junk okay, here right? there, and some of the stuff doesn't seem to fit right with the storyline. And you're kind of, I don't know, I like where are we going with this? Yeah, I really wouldn't recommend the documentary to be honest. It did have some helpful information, but for the most part, I was just like, What? Why are we talking about this? Who is this guy? <laughs> right? <laughs> they were talking, they spent a lot of time talking about a guy who was a- another CEO named. Lou pie something like that and about how he had an affinity for strippers and eventually he left the company and endorsed his wife because he got a stripper girlfriend pregnant and he was a very powerful guy and you're like is this relevant but like i really you know and then there was just like strippers on in this like you know the titties were just flying and i was like <laughs> why are we what what is this uh, is this the same documentary I was just watching 30 seconds ago? Why are there booties in my face? <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, Skilling, who had been the CEO of Enron for only six months, announced his, res- his resignation on August 14th due to personal reasons. And prior to his departure, he had sold at least 450,000 shares of Enron, valued at about $33 million. Do you think that his personal reasons were like, this shit? is bananas bananas (laughs) he's like i know this shit is going down and i'm not going with it maybe he he, i mean obviously he knew some shit was going down and that's why he sold and ran because he sold all his stuff i mean not all that he did retain more than a a million shares oh okay he did sell 33 million dollars worth And I think um, stripper guy had sold like $250 million worth or something like that prior to his departure. So they're just selling it off and getting, you know, getting the fuck out of there. Just hold on. (laughs) Bye. Despite Skilling's departure, Enron's chairman, Lay, assured the market that the company's performance and outlook would remain unchanged. But then on August 15th comes good old Sharon Watkins, who is... Basically, the main whistleblower here. Okay. So Sharon was Enron's vice president for corporate development, and she sent an anonymous letter to Lay warning him about the company's accounting practices. In the letter, she expressed concern that Enron could collapse under a wave of accounting scandals. She then approached a friend at Arthur Anderson, which was their audit company, and he drafted a memorandum for the audit partners about the accounting issues raised in her letter. Then on August 22nd, Watkins met with Lay and gave him a six-page letter explaining Enron's accounting problems in detail. She was like, this is everything y'all did that's fucked up, and you <laughs> need to fix it. And, and do we know how long it was? How long what? Like how, like, how many things it was? Was it like a time. Well, I don't know so, how hey, many things, I just know it was a six-page letter, and I would imagine okay. a six-page, six-page letter is... A lot of issues. That's a I lot mean, of I'm picturing pages. Ross from yeah. Friends being like, 18 pages of front and back! <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if it was front and back. I mean, it seems like a lot. And it does... I mean, just from what you're saying, there were a lot of issues. I mean, six, six pages are... problems is a lot of fucking problems. Yeah, it is a lot of problems. Like, I will have to detail... My day-to-day, I will have to detail issues that I run into, which there's... There, there's some people at my job are just, I, I don't know, brain disconnected from, I don't know what's going on. They're they're doing stuff so <laughs> weird. And so I have to keep compiling lists of, like, the stuff and letting somebody know so that they can kind of train them better. Right. And that's a minor thing. Like, I'm not getting anybody in trouble. It's not a major issue. Our bank isn't about to go under because of, like, problems or whatever. But I'm like... Six, page, six pages six pages is a lot. You have yeah. to send like one page where I have a single sentence where I'm like, this is wrong. And Nothing I'm wrong. like, I'm do- fix it. I don't <laughs> do this. This is annoying. I, I don't want to have to type out this one sentence. I couldn't imagine doing six pages of that and just yeah. yeah. And after all of this, all Kenneth Lay did was questioned whether Watkins had shared the information with anyone outside the company. <laughs> Third, he's like I don't want this getting out, you know. Listen, I understand, but did you tell anyone else? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And he promised to have the law firm, Vincent and Elkins review the issues. And Watkins argued that using the law firm would create a conflict of interest because that was like their law firm should go with an outside third party. You should always go with an objective third party yeah, when and you're auditing something. something. When you're doing an audit, yes, of course. And, you know, he ignored that, of course, and consulted with other executives, and he wanted to dismiss her, but they just ultimately decided not to because they didn't want a lawsuit, which this was all in Texas, and they didn't have, like, the best employment laws, you know, but still, it, you can still sue for you know, wrongful dismissal, and especially if you're a whistleblower, for sure. There's for sure, because everybody signs a contract about that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they decided not to fire her because, you know, they didn't want that. And on October 15th, Vincent and Elkins announced that Enron had not violated any accounting practices as each issue had been approved by Anderson, which, again, was Arthur Anderson, the audit company. Mm-hmm. In Mm -hmm. August 2001, Enron's stock value continued to decline, and Lay appointed Greg Wally, the president and COO of Enron Wholesale Services, to replace Skilling as the president and COO of the entire company. Mark Frevert was also appointed as the vice chairman, and both Wally and Frevert were given positions in the chairman's office. And some people have believed that Enron's investors required reassur- reassurance due to the complexity of the company's business and the difficulty in understanding it, as well as in describing it in financial statements. Which, I mean, that makes sense. And they're looking. It does at- make sense because I don't understand yeah. it, and we're sitting here talking about it. And I still don't understand. If you're looking at somebody's financial statements, going, "This does not make sense," of course, right. You're going to want some help in in comprehending and making sense. Yeah, of it. yeah. One analyst pointed out that it was challenging for analysts to determine Enron's profits or losses in a given quarter. And Lay acknowledged the complexity of the business, but believed that analysts would never receive all the information they desired to satisfy their curiosity. So he was like, it's fine. You're never going to get all the answers you want anyway. Yeah, because you're doing ridiculous shit. That's why. Honestly, sometimes I wonder if he didn't understand some of it. I think He probably he didn't. That's probably why he rally probably there. just like, you know what? I don't even know what the fuck y'all are doing, but it's making me money. So do it. Right. Exactly. That You know what? And truth be told, a lot of the time, the people that are in higher positions like that. Oh, no, no shit. Don't know shit about the actual business. They're just there, you know? <laughs> Well, he also explained that the complexity was largely due to tax strategies and position hedging. Whatever that means. Yeah, I don't even... The tax strategies shouldn't really be that complex. that people who do this shit for a living can't understand it. Anyway, his attempts to reassure investors seemed to have limited success because a prominent hedge fund manager noted that Enron's stock was... He said, trading under a cloud... I guess, basically not doing well, that's their lingo for it, by September 9th. 3D under a cloud. Yeah. I, don't... I wonder what you meant by that, but I'm not really sure. We can look it up, and we'll have the answer for next time. The sudden... Departure. Oh, like, like blind? Like you can't see? I don't know. Maybe. Because they're just making the numbers up? I'm not sure. No. I don't know. We we can... We can... Interesting. to interesting, But the sudden departure Skilling combined with the opacity of Enron's accounting books made proper assessment difficult for Wall Street. So they just... This dude up and left, he's probably the one dude that could explain some of it. The rest of it's all jargony bullshit that they don't understand. So they can't even make a proper assessment because they're just looking at it like, the fuck is that? We don't know. Do you know? We don't know. And then they're probably asking somebody else, hey, do you know what this means? (laughs) And that other person's like, hell no, I don't know what that is. It's like an everyday occurrence in my office. Hey, do you know if, can we do this? I don't know, ask so-and-so. And And you go and ask them, they're like, you know what, I don't know. Why don't you go ask this other person? (laughs) They're like, (laughs) I don't know, I've never been asked that question before. The company also admitted to repeatedly using related party transactions, which some feared could be too easily used to transfer losses that might otherwise appear on Enron's own balance sheet. Several of the related party entities were or had been controlled by CFO Fastow. So, this dude's got his hands and things. He's, I was going to say, so he's like dipping his thingies into everything. <laughs> and then, since this was 2001, this stuff was starting to go down in September. We know what happened in September 2001. And this is why all this stuff went down, and for the longest time, you were hearing about it nonstop, and then all of a sudden... And then you weren't. Were. Because September 11th happened, and Enron's stuff kind of got way overshadowed by media coverage of 9-11, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But It overshadowed it was, pretty much everything, because yeah, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal, and just because it was overshadowed media-wise doesn't mean it didn't still happen, so... Enron announced shortly after that it would sell its lower margin assets and focus on its core businesses of gas and electricity trading. This involved selling Portland General Electric to another Oregon utility, Northwest Natural Gas, for approximately $1.9 billion in cash and stock and potentially selling its 65% stake in the Dabul project in India. Which it should have, because it didn't really do do anything. Yeah. On October 16, 2001, Enron stated that it needed to make restatements to its financial statements from 1997 to 2000 due to accounting violations. The restatements resulted in a $613 million decrease in earnings, which was 23% of reported profits during the period a $628 million increase in liabilities at the end of 2000, which is 6% of reported liabilities and 5.5% of reported equity, and a $1.2 billion decrease in equity at the end of 2000, which is 10% of reported equity. So in that time, 23% of their profits gone, 6% of liabilities up and 10% of equity down. So that's a big adjustment. Yeah, I would say so. Also, in January of that year, Jeff Skilling claimed that Enron's broadband unit was worth $35 billion, but people were skeptical of that claim. An analyst at Standard & Poor's stated, no one really knows the value of the broadband operation. So Skilling, to break it down, was pretty much like, yeah, this is worth $35 billion. And Standard & Poor's was like, bitch, where? (laughs) They're like, what are you even talking about? Where are you seeing this? (laughs) Enron's management team attributed the majority of the company's losses to investment losses and restructuring costs for their troubled broadband trading unit. Lay claimed that the charges were necessary to address issues that had affected the company's performance and earnings potential. However, some analysts, including David Fleischer from Goldman Sachs, who was previously one of Enron's strongest supporters, expressed concern about the company's credibility and the need to reassure investors. He was like, y'all are fucking lying. (laughs) You need to reassure your investors before they all just leave. Exactly. I mean, it's like everything is starting to... Come out, yeah, and, and then things are falling apart. Like I had said, that Fastow owned or operated these related interest, you know, transactions. And one of the big players was something called LJM Limited. So Enron's board of directors learned on October 22nd that Fastow had earned thirty million dollars. They say so because he had his hands in these other companies. Does that mean that he was earning income not only from? run itself but from these other smaller companies they were all like skimming money on the top they not they were all just doing fictitious trades and then skimming money off of the profits so it's like whether whatever he earned legitimately it doesn't Who's even matter, it doesn't yeah, even matter yeah, yeah. he doesn't even knows, knows in the scheme of things because they were taking so much money off of everything anyway it's like how can you track it? Yeah, and he had earned $30 million from compensation arrangements while managing that LJ limited uh, partnerships. This announcement, combined with the SEC's investigation of several suspicious deals struck by Enron, caused the company's share price to drop significantly. So now our stocks are not doing great. Well, I mean, that's what happened. Enron attempted to clarify its financial situation and calm investors by using complex language, of course, to describe their share-settled, costless collar arrangements and derivative instruments, which left many analysts confused about the company's business practices. Should have done the donuts. (laughs) Like Ponzi. Wasn't that who did the donut? I don't remember I I don't remember anymore. I'm like, should have went out there and did the donuts. One of of them didn't know us. Oh, was it Uncle Jerry? No, it couldn't have been, right? Was it? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember. All I know is that Lay then promised to cooperate fully with the SEC investigation and put investors' concerns to rest. And after his his earlier assurances that he and the board had confidence in him, Fastow was removed as CFO two days later on October 25th. So they were like, hey, he's fine. We're completely confident in him. And then two days later, they were like, you're fired. Goodbye, sir. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Lay explained that restoring investor confidence required the replacement of Fastow. The move was prompted by several banks refusing to issue loans to Enron while Fastow was still in a position. Which makes sense. I mean, I I wouldn't either. He was doing some shady shit, and the banks were like, no, you're definitely not going to lend this little squirrel, squirrely man, some money. We're not going to do this. that makes sense? Enron's stock had lost half of its value in a little over a week and was trading at $16.41 from previous 83 and some change. Jeff McMahon, the head of industrial markets, succeeded passed out as CFO and was tasked with dealing with the cash crisis. So this dude, they bring him in after all this shit has went down and they're like, it. You I... <laughs> got this one person. Well, CFO, chief financial officer. So he's the head honcho there. Enron had lost access to several billion dollars in financing when it was unable to roll its commercial paper. The company had been experiencing difficulty selling its commercial paper for a week but it was now unable to sell overnight paper somebody wanted to do business with them on october 27th enron began buying back all its commercial paper which was worth about 3.3 billion dollars in an effort to allay investor feels fears about its supply of cash they were like look we have enough money to buy our shit back we're gonna buy our own stuff back it's fine Everything is fine it's fine. <laughs> nothing nothing like... to see here. Nothing to see here. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. Enron financed this repurchase by using its lines of credit at several banks. Seriously? Yeah, I mean, and that's how it goes. I mean, to the naked eye, you're just a consumer and you're watching this company spend all this money. You're like, God damn, they got some money to spend. You're thinking, you don't know the reality behind this, that they're just maxing out their lines of credit. It's pretty bad. Although the company's debt rating was still considered investment grade, its bonds were trading at slightly lower levels, which could pose problems for future sales and it was soon discovered that Fastow had been so focused on creating off-balance sheet vehicles that he had ignored some fundamental aspects of corporate finance. (laughs) Shocker! McMahon and a financial SWAT team discovered that Enron operated only on a quarterly basis under Fastow's watch. Fastow had not developed procedures for tracking cash... We're debt matured. Who would have thought? You know, <laughs> honestly, he, he he was nothing. Just not tracking anything. Essentially, Enron was illiquid, which means that their assets can't be readily sold or exchanged for cash without a loss in value. So we learned that you know liquidity is basically your ability to to transform your assets into actual physical cash. <laughs> and they had they got and they had none. none. Yeah. Towards the end of October 2001, some experts expressed serious concerns about Enron's potential manipulation of accounting rules. But incomplete information from the company, of course, made it difficult to conduct a thorough analysis because they were like, You don't need all the information because we don't even have it. Because we were just because we, we, want. we were just making it up all along and doing whatever the hell we wanted. So really there is nothing for you to even look at here. I'm like, let's see your books, and it's just like a drawing of a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I could only imagine, honestly. Some industry analysts compared Enron to long-term capital management, whose bankruptcy in 1998 had the potential to cause a systemic failure of international financial markets. So that's not great when you're being compared to something that could have crashed everything. Yeah, that's... that's pretty bad. Enron's executives only accepted written questions, and the company's financial statements were cryptic, making it difficult for analysts to properly assess the situation. Enron's credit rating was also at risk of being downgraded, which could force the company to issue millions of shares to, of stock to cover loans and decrease the value of the existing stock. Because they were, like, using their stock as collateral on all these loans and sure Like, you can't use stock that's plummeting as coll- that's collateral. Because- collateral, like, if you take out, say, a $100,000 loan, then your collateral needs to equal $100,000 because so they need to cash in your collateral loan because you're defaulting. Like, you need to have that. Yeah, you can't have a $100,000 loan and use your stock as collateral. So, Kodak is worth 15 that million. That's an Way less, or even in the negative. Yeah. That's pretty bad. <laughs> Companies with contracts with Enron were reviewing their agreements, anticipating the possibility of Enron's rating being lowered below investment grade, which isn't good. No. On, on October 29th, Enron sought $1 to $2 billion in financing from banks due to concerns that the company might have insufficient cash on hand. Well, if you're not monitoring your cash, you tend to sometimes run out. Exactly. The next day, Moody's downgraded Enron's credit rating, which could prevent the company from finding further financing. So now they're screwing themselves even further yeah because now they can't even get any more financing so how are they going to dig themselves out of this hole that they've already created mm-hmm. in november the sec began a formal investigation into enron's dealings with related parties you know fast house little things <laughs> his his other things his other things saying he had his fingies in <laughs> and enron's board announced a special committee to investigate the transactions Enron then secured an additional one billion dollars in financing from crosstown rival Dinogen on November 2nd, but the debt was secured by assets from the company's valuable northern natural gas and transwestern pipeline. There was another thing <laughs> that Enron did, and I'm not quite sure, I can't remember the time frame that just took place, but it was around all of this. They had royally fucked California at this point because they were controlling all of like all of the electricity and energy stuff in California and they were doing some like shady shit they were calling you know the power plants and they were like creating blackouts they were creating these rolling blackouts in California they were like intentional yes they were talking about how california didn't have enough power to supply everyone so they had to do these blackouts and they would call up like the power plants and be like um come up with a reason for why you need to shut everything down for three to four hours and we don't care what it is just come up with a reason and then they would like jack prices up while this stuff was out and lead everybody to think that there was this huge energy crisis and really, it was just them screwing with everything to create more profit for themselves. for themselves. And they were doing it on purpose, and they were joking about it and talking about it. I think, I believe, they ended up costing the state of California thirty billion dollars over the course of a year for that's insane. Energy crisis, blackout, nonsense situation, they and jacking up right up you know, because everything was deregulated. Because that was the whole point: get it deregulated, and then do whatever the fuck you want right and that's where i'm gonna end this episode so we've got you know our breakdown of kind of how it all started the company in general the guys that were in charge who was doing what the things were confusing that they were kind of making shit up as they went along Mm -hmm. they were making up profits that they did that did (laughs) exist yeah so And then they're, like, trying to secure other funds with non-existent funds. It's like, what the fuck were they even doing? Yeah, it's like they were playing with fake money, almost. Yeah, and just, like... It's like when you're a kid and you're playing bank with your your Yeah, you have... Oh, no, you owe me that. No, you owe me that. No, I have 40 million dollars. And you're like, well, where the fuck did did that come from? I just made it up. Like, that's what they were doing. Because I just said I had it. That's why I have 50 million (laughs) (laughs) dollars, So there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Like I said, that's where I'm going to stop. Because it's a lot of information. But it at least kind of lays the foundation. It kind of lays the foundation where we're going. And so... Yeah, now we have an idea of what's going on. I mean, What, what they were doing, get... but we don't yet know how it all played out and how it worked out for them. We just know that they were doing some shady shit, and it's all starting to collapse on them. Right. And when we pick up next week, so like I said, they were um, trying to work with this dyna Well, dyna eventually starts to buy them out. So oh, that's yeah. where I'm going to pick up with the next one. We're going to okay. talk about the dyna buyout. We're going to talk about their bankruptcy because, obviously, they went bankrupt and they don't exist anymore. They don't exist anymore. We'll talk about the trials, what kind of time everybody got. I know in your style, there's one man who did commit suicide, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's always got to be one. And I don't, I'm not sure if I have him in my notes. I've been working on this for so long, I don't even remember, Mm -hmm. but... And then I'm going to talk about the aftermath and what all went down after all of this, after all the shit hit the fan. I know. That's the thing. With these bigger um, stories, you have to kind of lay the groundwork and then you got to get into the nitty gritty of it. And you got to do the aftermath. It's like a whole process. Well, I'm going to see because I'm not quite done yet. I'm still being nosy. I'm going to see if I can find a little bit more information on kind of what they're up to now. Mm -hmm. Because all of this happened a good 20 years ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. And some of these people have passed away since then. Some of these people have been in and out of jail. So I'm going to see if I can catch up with what they're doing. And I might add that on, you know, if I can't find much about it, then whatever. But I'm going to try and find some stuff to, mm-hmm. you know, see what everybody's up to now. And we're going to go over all of that next week. And I hope I didn't bore everyone to tears. And I'm sorry if I did. And I really don't blame you if you skipped this one. Because I'm not even really <laughs> into all the corporate bullshit. I mean, honestly, I feel like we kept it. Lighthearted Maybe. enough i think i think if if you could stick with us for these 40 minutes i think you can you know you can listen to my second voice for another the second part <laughs> <laughs> and as always if it seems too good to be true it is and if you'd like to find us on socials which some people have i we've had a few extra followers lately which i'm excited oh yeah that's always exciting to see we enjoy that. Yeah, So if you want to find us on socials, we're on Facebook at Two Good to Be True Podcast. We're on Instagram and TikTok at Too Good to Be True Pod. If you'd like to email us and tell me about my voice, which I know isn't sexy, we're joking. We know this, okay? <laughs> we just found it funny. Yes. If you want like to email us about anything, it's Too good to Be true Pod at outlook dot com. If you want to leave us a voice mm-hmm. note, that's in the show mm-hmm. notes. If you want to support us monetarily, so we can get better mics also in the show notes yes please thanks for i don't even know thanks for dealing with this (laughs) thanks for dealing with our nonsense and listening to us every week Bye. bye bye first thing i heard was hey and i was expecting somebody to be like what's your name <laughs> tony fuck you tony <laughs> i've seen that video <laughs> it was it sounded exactly like it, it so i opened the window like and it. i heard the hey I was like, what what's your name <laughs> <laughs> i almost did it too i was almost like what 16 year old Billy <laughs> Fuck you Billy <laughs> it's like a young kid And they're like Excuse me like, Mama This lady just told me Fuck you I <laughs> <laughs> don't know why